Welcome to the Heathen History Podcast, where we show up and tell you why historically you're doing it wrong. I'm Lauren. And I'm Ben. And today we are going to be talking about the German Romantic period. Yes, we're going to be talking about Romanticism. And not because it's what you think it is, because when I would announce when you hear romanticism or romantic and you've forgotten what you learned in history class in high school or college, you think like, you know, rom-coms and such stuff. But no, yeah, it's not that. I always think of those uh, romance novels with Fabio on the cover. Yes. You remember those? Oh, yeah. I also remember Fabio getting hit in the face with a goose on a roller coaster. What? <laughs> Fabio got hit in the face with a goose, goose on, on a roller coaster. How could they tell? Because <laughs> they were taping it for some sort of like promotional thing, mm-hmm. and they got film of him getting like. There's video if you look it up on the internet. Right there is a video of Fabio getting smacked in the face by a goose, or it may have been a duck, but it was white. So I'm going with goose. Okay. Okay then. <laughs> yeah, All right. Good so, to good to know. So romanticism has nothing to do with Fabio getting hit in the face with a goose. Right. But it'd be a lot cooler if it was. I'm finding the I'm finding the whole idea just strangely uh, <laughs> strangely compelling. It really could, we could do a hey if if this podcast doesn't work, we could do another one where we just go around hitting people in the face with with a goose. There's probably a YouTube channel that already exists of that, and my kid probably watches it twelve <laughs> hours a day. So previously, we had talked about the Reformation and the wars of religion. Mm-hmm. So. How does that tie into what we're talking about now? Okay. Well, the wars of religion, we talked about this inspires a lot of German nationalist feeling and gets a lot of people reading their Tacitus. And it's also responsible for the ancestors of the Pennsylvania Germans deciding they've had enough and migrating to the United – well, it's not the United States, but migrating to America and founding the Pennsylvania German culture. So they would they would have called it then the colonies. Mm-hmm. Yes, settling around the aptly named Germantown, Pennsylvania. Yes, but wars continue on and off throughout the 1600s and 1700s. Those of you that were actually taught by a competent world history teacher in high school, which is more than I can say for myself, might remember the War of the Spanish Succession and the War of the Austrian Succession. And the war of the this and the war of the that and the... Uh, I just want to say thank you, Mrs. Buchanan, mm-hmm. my high school history teacher, and Mr. Harrison, who actually taught me these things. All right. Well, good, good. Yeah, I was taught world history by one of the best coaches in uh, the high school league. But in part, as a reaction to all of this, there was a new intellectual movement that kicked off in the 1600s, affectionately known as the Enlightenment Because we were coming out of the Dark Ages? Yes. Go me. There's this radical idea that we can actually make a better society using science, knowledge, and reason. This is very much a time when people are talking about, you know, sitting down and being reasonable about everything. So we've regressed a lot lately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The idea was probably way ahead of its time. I feel like there was witches involved here. I don't know. Like, I feel like mm. somehow women who espouse this might have been called witches. I don't don't have any proof. It's just a gut feeling of God. Yeah, well, the, the witch burnings were actually not in the medieval period. They'd actually been going on in the 1500s and 1600s. There were not actually nine million witches burned. It was nowhere near that. Never once the burning times. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, there were people that did get burned. I mean, the 1600s were pretty wretched time. And if you would like to know more about this kind of false narrative history mm-hmm. evolve around witchcraft and Wicca, right. I suggest you check out our two-part episode on Gerald Gardner and a brief history of Wicca abridged. And what do we burn besides witches? More witches! <laughs> Sorry, momentary tribute to Terry Jones, who has yes. uh, just yes. left the building. Right, so... Enlightenment was very much centered on reasoning, that Mm -hmm. the idea of science and reasoning could make – you didn't necessarily need an external morality that science and reason could give you that kind of 
that way to live and be good. Right. You didn't need to be led, you know, by Prince Frederick, the complete idiot whose only claim to the throne is that he happened to, you know, be the lead sperm that one particular evening. Yeah, the divine right of king. Right, right. You don't yeah, you don't need that anymore. This is the time when you have everybody from William Harvey working out the circulation of the blood to Robert Hooke and Antoni von Leeuwenhoek developing this new gizmo called the microscope. This is the time when you have, I mean, Isaac Newton is the really big name, but you have Newton and Leibniz sparring over who invented calculus. Yeah. Yeah, you have this great idea that you could actually use your brain and genuinely figure something out. And you have this definitely push against the divine right of kings, absolute Mm -hmm. monarchies. So you have things, and I'm going to mention these, and for our American listeners, they're going to sound awful familiar. Things like separation of powers. Oh, yeah. Rights of man. Mm-hmm. The social contract. Mm-hmm. I, I think we still hear these things now because they are the American Constitution was written kind of during this time period as well. Right. The idea that you have inalienable rights that nobody can take away just by virtue of being a paid up member of Homo sapiens. You know, it's right there in the Declaration of Independence. It's one of our founding ideals. And at this time, it was a rather new idea. Fledgling United States inherited a great deal of this. And there was definitely, religion was kind of interesting at that point, because while you didn't necessarily have like out and out atheism, there was definitely a lot of deism, skepticism, and anti-superstition, you know, and natural religion. Ben, what is natural religion? Just the idea that it, it's got a lot to do with deism, the idea that there is a creator God, but he doesn't directly intervene. He doesn't really bother anybody. All of that stuff about miracles is meaningless, and so is a great deal of ritual. You know, There's no particular reason you should have to eat a cracker and drink some wine and then argue about what it was that you really just ate and drank. So what you're saying is, reason makes me feel, reason makes me feel like a natural religion. I like it. I like it. I wish I'd thought of that. I wonder if I could. <laughs> Dang, I wish I could. How long have you had that waiting? Uh, not actually very long. Actually, so when I said, Ben, what is a natural religion? It just kind of popped in my head. Oh, so. Okay. I blame the fact that uh, I was watching one of my favorite drag queens do a version of that last night. So. Oh, okay. I wonder if I've got the pipes for that. Reason makes me feel like a natural religion. Religion. All right. So, yeah, this is the time when you have Thomas Jefferson putting together his own version of the Bible, or at least the New Testament that he's basically cut and pasted from his favorite parts of the Gospels. The Red Letter Testament. Yeah, well, and also leaving yeah. out the the weirder miracles. This is where you have Voltaire writing things like, you know, writing about the ideal theist. And he says, you know, the Catholic says, curses on you if you don't make the pilgrimage to Notre Dame. The Muslim says, curses on you if you don't make the pilgrimage to Mecca. He laughs at Notre Dame, he sneers at Mecca, but he helps the oppressed. So, yeah, doing good and not worrying so much about the externals is is kind of the attitude here. And it's the attitude of a lot of the founding fathers. They were— As long as you were white, male, and owned property. Well, yeah, yeah, of course. Let's not get crazy Let's, let's not get too reasonable here. So the Enlightenment fired up a lot of political issues. You have the French Revolution in mm-hmm. 18, 1789, and Louis XVI gets guillotined. That's one of the things that hopefully you learned about in history class. Right, right. The storming of the Bastille and yes. Marie Antoinette not actually saying, let them eat cake. It's attributed to her, but she didn't really say it. And- I always assumed it was some sort of propaganda. Yeah, the from what I've been able to read, Louis the Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette were nice people who cared about their country. They just weren't really good at it. Louis the Sixteenth, I found this out. His, uh, you know, what his hobby was? What was his hobby? He was a locksmith. 
you love taking apart and putting together complicated locks and, and mechanisms and things like that. And I think if he could have done that, he would have been happy. Yeah. As it was, he had to be king and he ended up, you know, losing his head over the whole thing. And it was interesting because during this whole time, the French armies were able to go out and defeat surrounding monarchies. So the French Revolution wasn't just French. It was really mm. a European revolution. Right. Well, the other European monarchies did not want this sort of thing to spread. So they called up their armies and then the French Revolutionary Army kept beating them. You have 16,000 people executed during the Reign of Terror ending in 1794 but the revolutionary government just can't hold power. No. And one of the things that I think is genuinely great about the United States is we had a revolution and we held our shit together. I mean, in so many countries, you have revolutions that promise freedom and justice and independence, and then it all falls apart and you end up with a dictatorship or an anarchy. But somehow we managed to make that transition from colony to, you know, independent country that's actually managed to last. For about 60 years, and then mm-hmm. we, we kind of screwed well, up Well, and then the again. Civil War, and yeah. okay, okay, let's so, not uh, overstate it. Yes, so, of course, because of that, Napoleon comes into power, he is crowned emperor, and then he goes and, like, tries to beat everyone else up, and then eventually has his Waterloo, mm-hmm. and then that inspires an ABBA song, and, and that's how we got Heathenry. Mm-hmm. Wait, no, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. We could rewrite that one. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Valkyrie, watching me die on the battlefield, <laughs> taking my soul up to Odin's Hall, <laughs> okay. finally facing my Valkyrie. Valkyrie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Yeah, so Napoleon basically ends up taking on the entirety of Europe and manages to rule most of it or at least have it cowed at one point, breaks the um, number one rule of never get into a land war in Asia. Well, it's not Asia. It's Russia. But um, marches in and loses most of his army, gets kicked out, comes back, raises another army finds his Waterloo, and ends up on uh, the island of uh, St. Helena, where he dies. Now what? So now it's 1815. It's 1815, and people are kind of like, this science and and this reasonableness, Mm. that is offending my delicate sensibilities. Something like that. You can find traces of this (laughs) well before... 1815, but yeah, all of that fervor about the rights of man and liberté, égalité, fraternité, and liberty leading the people, marching ahead of the people's army with one boob flopping out. Yeah. You know, that's a fairly famous French painting of the time. Yes. Liberty's always running around with the mammary exposed, because France. Yeah, but it was this kind of a, a counter where all of a sudden there was this very strong focus on individual identity, mm-hmm. your own personal spiritual development. And your own feelings. This is the first time where you start getting novels that are focusing on characters' inner lives and feelings. From what I understand from my art history class, which wasn't that great, mm-hmm. it became very much of, I am more in touch with my feelings and nature and spirituality than you, neener, neener, neener. Mm-hmm. Well, you can see it in music. If you look at classical music before this time, don't get me wrong, it's glorious, a lot of it, but a lot of it was written for hire. It's like, hey, Mozart, the Archbishop of Salzburg needs a new setting of the Mass in time for Pentecost. Please don't make this next one so long. You know the man's got hemorrhoids and can't sit down for too long. That sort of thing. Or, you know, hey, Haydn... Prince Esterhazy's having a party and he needs three new symphonies by Saturday. Can you crank them out? And of course, Haydn did and ended up writing, I think, 104 yeah. symphonies. So a lot of the music is being written to satisfy the taste of employers in uh, the church or the or the state, the government. Beethoven comes along and... Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> true. 
You do know, of course, what Beethoven's favorite fruit was, right? What? Banana. <laughs> plum, 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 plum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, he does take some commissions and things like that. I mean, composers still do to this day. But he also earns his keep putting on concerts for his own music, where he can uniquely express himself in all of its, you know, all of his own glory and tragedy in his own music. He's putting himself out before the public in the way that composers didn't used to so much. And the music is certainly more, I don't want to say it's more emotional, but it's more open, more out there, more, you know, ah, this is how I feel. It's more yeah, emotionally open, I suppose, than the more controlled work that people like Mozart had done. And, and there was definitely a focus on intuition and emotion were much more important than reason. Right. You have this emotion, you have these feelings, and the artist is uniquely able to express these. They're more in touch with reality and with nature than other people, and they can take their insights and bring them into the world. And you saw a, a more... Less formal language as well. Mm -hmm. When it came to it, art, you saw folk music, you saw commoner art, you saw this idolization of the past being the spirit of an entire people. Mm -hmm. And you have um, poets uh, start moving to more conversational language. Uh, certainly in English literature, the 1700s sometimes get a little bit too cute. But then you have people like Williams Wordsworth who are writing poetry in something closer to the way ordinary people spoke. And they're also getting their unique inspiration from nature that they can appreciate. You know, Wordsworth is writing, I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils. Beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. I won't read the rest, but he ends it. For oft when on my couch I lie in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye which is the bliss of solitude, and then my heart with pleasure thrills and dances with the daffodils. So there you have this great appreciation for nature and for, you know, the poet is describing his own emotional response to nature. And it gets in on the political level in appreciation, not just for, you know, one person's nature, but for a country's nature and its landscapes and its people and its past. And that comes into an interesting play when we start talking about Germany. Mm-hmm. So Germany is still not a nation at this point. And I think that's Germany is a region. It's a collection of states. It's mm -hmm. not a a unified country. But you have basically, as, as the notes here put it, I will read Ben's notes directly because mm -hmm. they're so great. You have military heavyweights like Prussia to kingdoms the size of a schnitzel. Right. You have kingdoms that consist of nothing but a romantic castle, 27 sheep, and a traditional recipe for sausage. That sounds like my idea of a Saturday night. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, is is that typical out in Brinkley? I wouldn't know. I don't live in Brinkley. Okay. All right. Wait, I thought that was where you were from. No. Okay. <laughs> is that typical out in East Arkansas? Yeah, except for the castle. Oh, okay. Yeah, more more grain silo than, than yeah, castle. Yeah, really. Okay. There's no real mountains. Yeah. Right, right. So, yeah, Germany is united by speaking more or less the same language but it's divided up into a lot of different realms, always has been for a very long time. And this coalition of states had a hard time resisting Napoleon. The Holy Roman Empire officially ended in 1806. After Napoleon is done, the surviving states form uh, a German confederation but still, you know, it exposed a weakness. They weren't able to unite well enough to fend off Napoleon. Yeah. So now that Napoleon's gone, what should they do? Well, there's this idea that perhaps they ought to unify. And there were some romantics at the time that were looking for things to inspire the German nation. 
And some of them went looking at ancient Greece and Rome. There was this guy named Winkelmann who was very big on the old classics. Friedrich Schlegel, who I think we might have mentioned in the uh, Indo-European podcast, thought India was the bee's knees and all wisdom had ultimately come from India. But the ones we're going to focus on here were the romantics that started looking to the traditions of their own people, their own nation, you know, the sturdy German peasantry that had been tilling the land ever since, you know, King Theodegundahad or whoever, you know, whoever it might have been. So you have uh, Johann Jacob Bodmer. Right, Jacob Bodmer in the 1750s. And he published a series of medieval poems and epics, which were definitely kind of the first of their kind. It was pretty, it was pretty, the first time someone actually sat down and collected them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of these had circulated in manuscript and some of them had circulated in earlier printed books. But Bodmer put out the first complete edition of the medieval German Nibelungenlied. What is that? The Nibelungenlied? Yes. Well, you know the Volsunga saga in of course. Norse and the Volsung poems in the uh, the poetic Edda. This is the German telling of it, and it's the same story, except a lot of the details are different, and it's not set in a kind of quasi-Viking past the way it is in the Norse texts. It's in a courtly setting. So you have Siegfried and Brunhilde and all of that, and they go jousting and feasting. and So, so less Viking, more King Arthur. Yeah, less Viking, more King Arthur. It ends with an absolutely colossal slaughter in which everybody gets horribly killed. Siegfried is the equivalent of Sigurd in the Volsunga saga, and he gets betrayed, and he gets killed, and then the Burgund kingdom has nobody to protect it. So the Burgunds get invited to Attila's hall, this Attila the Hun, yeah. but he's made into just kind of another medieval king. He's not much of a Hun in more ways than one. So what you're saying is they really had to get down to business to defeat the Huns? Mm-hmm. Have you brought me daughters when I asked for sons? I'd, I'm sorry, I don't get this. Mulan. Let's get down to business to defeat. I, I forget your kid's not old enough for Milan. Anyway. Oh, oh, right, right, yeah. right. So because of, of these things, you have this circle of 18th century, late 18th century poets who are sometimes called the bards who – kind of move away like French models of poetry were very kind of the standard. Yeah. And the enlightenment sort of the, the standard of culture was French. And in fact, in some ways it still is, you know, the French court of Louis the 14th invented ballet, for example. So you have this group who decide to break away from that and they want to go more towards the ancient Germanic practices, at least in spirit. Right. They're not really writing alliterative odes. They're not using the old German poetic forms. Which is a shame. Right. But they are using the German language and the best known of them, a guy named Friedrich Gottlieb Klopstock. His famous one is this enormously long epic about the life of Jesus. It's called Messias, the Messiah. But he also wrote odes and dramas that were set in the ancient Germanic past in honor of uh, Arminius, for example, you know, the guy who had uh, wiped out three Roman legions at the Battle of Teutoberger Wald. Would you like to read the German and I'll I read would. the English. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. One of the pieces he wrote was a drama called Hermann Schlacht, uh, Hermann's Slaughter from 1769. And here he's got a bunch of priests who are praying, and they say, Wodan unbeleidigt von uns, willen sie bei denen alteren uns an. Wodan unbeleidigt von uns, erhoben sie ihr Beil gegen den freies Volk. Weit halle dein Schild, dein Schlauchtruf töne, wie das Weltmeer an dem Felsengestade. Furchtbar schrebe den Adler und schreie nach Blut und trinke Blut und die Talle des heiligen Hains decke weißes Gebein. How was that? that that's my, my would be, whoa, Dan. 
<laughs> so the English translation of this course being Woden, without provocation from us, they fell upon us beside your altars. Woden, without provocation from us, they raised their axe against your free folk. Far may your shield ring, may your battle cry resound like the world sea against the rocky shore. May your eagle soar, bringing terror, and scream for blood, and drink blood. And may bleached bones cover the valley of the holy grove. I checked the translation with a, a German-speaking friend whose comment on this was, Klopstock is just so goth. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the kind of thing, you know, I think if, we, if there's ever a modern production of this, you need about three guitars, and the priests need to be going... Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, there's a very black metal sensibility yeah. to the whole thing. So. Excuse me, the black metal kind of. <laughs> yeah, I gotcha there. But yeah, it, it is very, uh, it's very German. I right. really don't know any other way to put it. That's really German. Right. Yeah, it's, I mean, just reading that is giving me the sudden urge to conquer Belgium. <laughs> That's how German it is. <laughs> Sorry about that if we have any Belgian uh, oh. listeners. And it's very much romantic because it's no longer about Greece and Rome. It's no longer about subjects that are on the approved list. It's about, you know, a particular nation's traditions. It's about, you know, an accomplishment of specifically the German people and it's breaking away from these renaissance and classical models of what right. art is supposed to look like so we start rolling into romanticism in germany so there's a lot of really important figures but we only mm -hmm. really have one that we're going to focus on who is a philosopher and theologian johann gottfried herder mm -hmm. herder herder of course i've heard of him <laughs> you heard of him you heard a herder? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You heard a herder? Herder, herder, herder. Sorry. Oh, wait, that's Swedish. I'm yeah, sorry. We got, we'll do that in a later uh, later show. So humans are naturally social organisms. Right. Bound to each other by bonds of kinship, friendship, shared culture, and language. That sounds, oh, wow. That mm -hmm. I feel very called out by that statement. Mm -hmm. All right. But yeah, humans are not atoms unique. We're yeah. all connected. That just sounds way too much like how I describe heathenry, so I'm just going to, mm -hmm. except for the whole shared culture and language thing, but yeah, I'm just going to, yeah. Human governments began as extension of these natural bonds, which means that unnatural governments, such as a hereditary monarchy, despotism, and sprawling multicultural empires bring misery. Right. You have things like the Austro, I guess it's not the Austro-Hungarian Empire yet. That's 1860s, I think, 1870. Wouldn't this be – is this too early for the Ottomans? No, oh, the Ottomans are – the Ottomans wouldn't completely fall apart until 1920, but they're right. they are getting pushed out of Europe. But I'm just saying that would be a more historically recent yeah. like example for – to reference in their minds. Yeah, the Ottomans were Turks, but they had been ruling over everybody from you know Arabs and Palestinians to Greeks and – Serbs and Bosnians and Herzegovinians. I mean, the uh, Austria, the Habsburgs had been ruling this confederation of Germans and Czechs and Slovaks and Romanians and, you know, who knows what else. Really, the Habsburgs really took it on the chin. Mm -hmm. Oh, <laughs> nice one. Nice one. Nice one. Yeah. And, you know, this is the time when the royal family of England also happens to be rulers of the German principality of Hanover. Yes. So you have a lot of cases where, you know, countries are ruled not by somebody who actually looks like them or speaks their language, but somebody who has the right to rule them because his granddad made a good marriage deal with, you know, somebody else. Right. So – that brings back this person's proposed best social organization were natural or an organic ones or a Volk. A Volk. This is where we get the word. Now, Volk would get borrowed and would shift its meaning. And by the time you're getting into Germany, you know, 100 years later in the 1910s, 1920s, 
it's starting to get just a little bit sinister. And you have, you know, this is where you start getting the Vulkish right. ideology. But I just want to say here that, that Herder, when he was grouping people, he was grouping people based on a common language and culture, not by race. Right. Specifically, it was language that he believed was going to expose the true essence of a Volk. Or a Volkgeist or a... Volksoul, Volksgeist. That's where the word Volksoul comes from. Yeah, he said in his ideas for a philosophy of history, the most natural state is therefore one Volk, an extended family with one national character. For a nation is as natural a plant as a family, only with more branches. Nothing, therefore, is more manifestly contrary to the purposes of political government than the unnatural enlargement of states, the wild mixing of various races and nationalities under one scepter. So, yeah, the best way to govern is to divide people up into their volks, groups of people that share common history, common culture, and especially common language. And we've got a quote from a follower of his, uh, Johann Gottlob Fichte, who wrote in his 13th address to the German nation, the first original and truly natural boundaries of the state are beyond doubt their internal boundaries. Those who speak the same language are joined to each other by a multitude of invisible bonds by nature herself. They understand each other and have the power of continuing to make themselves understood more and more clearly. Such a whole, if it wishes to absorb and mingle with itself any other people of different descent and language, cannot do so without itself becoming confused. Yeah, yeah, that's what, yeah, get confused? That's yeah. Fichte's point, uh, exactly. Now, the interesting thing with that is... It very much is based on communication and language. Mm -hmm. And when you have all of these different European states speaking different languages mm -hmm. that I can, for the time and the place, mm -hmm. let me caveat this, I can see the point for the time and place in the immediate history. Mm -hmm. I don't agree, but I can at least understand the winding path of logic he took. Right. And, I mean, Herder's been called a proto-Nazi, which I honestly don't think is fair because he didn't – well, one of the ways in which he was very progressive is he didn't recognize the existence of races. No. His idea of race was based on language. Right. And as he put it, you know, there are neither four nor five races nor exclusive varieties on the earth. Complexions run into each other. In form, forms follow the genetic character – they are but different shades of the same great picture which extends through all ages and all parts of the earth. Nor did Herder believe that one Volk was superior to another. They were just different. And he, you know, his idea was basically that government, that each language group, each Volk mm -hmm. had different needs, therefore had different government structures that would work best. Right. But the best government, he thought, was actually a um, liberal democracy with freedom of speech and the press. He, he would have been yeah. horrified by what the Nazis made of the ideology. He also was in favor of women's rights. He opposed anti-Semitism and very much opposed uh, slavery and colonialism. Mm -hmm. In his Letters for the Advancement of Humanity, let the land be named to which Europeans have come without having sinned against defenseless, trusting humanity. Through injurious acts, through unjust wars, greed, deceit, oppression, through diseases and harmful gifts, our part of the world must be called not the wise, but the presumptuous, pushing, tricking part of the earth. And it is not cultivated, but it destroys the shoots of people's own cultures wherever and however it could. Right. You go with on your bad self herder. Yeah. Very anti-imperialist anti-colonialist there, very much aware of the harm that Europeans have done colonizing other parts of the globe. Well, and if he believed that 
cultures were based on language and each culture was unique, then Mm -hmm. by going in and essentially forcing your own culture and language, Mm -hmm. you're essentially committing genocide. Right. I agree with him on that. Right. So, yeah, very progressive in some ways. And it's hard to look at his ideas without, you know, prejudice that results from knowing what Volk would eventually become. It ends up getting mixed up with a lot of bad ideas about genetics. I can't believe who we're going to talk about next. What? Emmanuel Kant? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, that's another name that you might remember from your intro to philosophy class. Or from Monty Python. Yeah. 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 Emmanuel Kant was a real pissant who was very rarely stable. Heidegger, Heidegger was a boozy beggar who could thank you under the table. Yeah. Can I sing the whole thing? No. We might get copyright striked. Oh. uh, Yeah, you're right. Okay. I've already dealt with one of those this week. (laughs) So... And Kant argued that different climate conditions had permanently altered the different human races from the original ideal, which, you know, the ideal, of course, being European in right. his mind. The Europeans had degenerated the least from the perfect ideal. They were the only race really capable of self-government. Uh, and then we go down into and then his like ideas about who's the most degenerate. You know what? I'm not going to read it. I'm not. If mm-hmm. you really want to know, you can look it up. Suffice to say, it's super racist. To be fair, he ended up changing his position in later years. He did back away from it by about 1790 something. Still don't want to read it because mm-hmm. it's okay. super racist. All I right. mean, listen, if you really want to know. He thought that the browner you were, the worse you were. That's what it comes down to. Right. The browner you are, the more completely incapable you are of governing yourself. Yes. Be it said that the man never left uh, Königsberg, uh, Germany. This is not based on actual anthropological observation. So he's like most of our racist uncles back home. Right. Who've never left, you know, Prairie County, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Right. And he was joined in this by a gent named uh, J.F. Blumenbach, who built up a great big collection of skulls and took a lot of measurements on them. You can measure from various landmarks on uh, the skull. I took a class in this as an undergrad, and there's all kinds of defined points on the skull, and you can measure with your calipers, and you can measure the volume and things like that. And he gathered all this data in an attempt to prove that Europeans were the original human race. So so wait a minute. He has a big collection of skulls, and he's called a scientist. I want a big collection of skulls, and someone calls me crazy. Mm. <sighs> Men. Yeah, I, I don't get it either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that he felt the people from the Caucasus Mountains specifically. Right. The Caucasians, if you were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, were the closest to the ideal of perfection. And that's why Caucasian came to be used as a racial term. You know, most of us don't actually come from the Caucasus. And most people from the Caucasus are actually darker complected. And people from the Caucasus include people from several very different language families and ethnic origins. But it's because of Blumenbach that Caucasian got used as a term for, you know, pigmentally challenged persons. Yes. So – in addition of this, to all this philosophy we have going on, we mm-hmm. also have the Brothers Grimm. Right. Jakob and Wilhelm, who get really into German unification during their time as uh, students at the University of Marburg. And they have to support the family as well, so it's a little bit difficult for them at first. But they get jobs as librarians and scholars, and they went around collecting the famous folk tales as they called them, the Kindle and Hausmärchen, the children's and home tales, inspired to do this by Herder. And Herder, I don't know if we mentioned, had actually pioneered in the field by going around and publishing a book of German folk songs. Yes. So now they went around and collected the stories, not so much because they particularly wanted to entertain children, And, I mean, a lot of these stories are actually pretty darn creepy in their original form. They're pretty creepy in their normal, in their Disney-fied form. Yeah. Because if you think about it, everybody's got dead parents. Yeah, good point. And, you know, (laughs) wicked stepmothers and, you know, witches eating children and, and things like that. But the idea was that if you could go among the people, and again, this is this very romantic idea that, you know, the 
symbol humple working people of the land have preserved the true nature of your nation better than these sissified city-dwelling aristocrats. Oh, God, that also sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Oh. Yeah, the Grimms were Republicans. Oh. Actually, I'm... No. Yeah, yeah. The Grimms were the Grimms, but it was very much that it was definitely, I would call it, an anti-intellectualist or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's that idea, not right. necessarily political party, but just this idea of the intellectuals don't know what they're doing. Right. Well, maybe not so much, I mean, because the Grimms were intellectuals, but... They still believe that you know the non-intellectual population that was still living on the land was deeper in touch with the true German spirit than the more cosmopolitan types. And they wanted to put together a German national mythology, and they thought – and in some cases they might have been right, and in other cases not so much, but they thought that traces of the old ways might still be present in – the fairy tales that they collected, and in the medieval legends that they collected. And Jacob put it all together in a book. The first edition came out in 1835, Deutsche Mythologie, which is best known in an English translation of the second edition in four volumes called Teutonic Mythology. Yeah. And that was great and all, Mm -hmm. but... To able to actually construct a national mythology, they had to reassemble all these documents and legends and folk tales, but they kind of had to duct tape it together with some Scandinavian mythology. Right. Well, they had to duct tape it together with a lot of speculation and and things like that. It's a lot of fragments pieced together, and it's still very much worth a read for, you know, folklore you won't find anywhere else, but – They had to borrow a lot of Scandinavian mythology from the Eddas and the sagas to make it all fit. And I think some Scandinavians were a little bit annoyed. Hey, get your own national heritage. This is ours. I do find it interesting. This is the first time in at least my examination of kind of more modern history that you really see the phrase that I've seen the phrase pan-Germanic. Right. Which has been, you know, there's a lot of discussion about what is and isn't heathenry. And, you know, the general consensus has always been heathenry is kind of pan-Germanic. Right. Meaning it's not just, you know, most people to the outside might think it's just Icelandic or Norse or Scandinavian, but it really does encompass more than that. Well, it can, but you're also seeing, I don't know if heathenry as such is a religion or a constellation of related ones, but you've got Anglo-Saxon heathenry. Right. Shout out to uh, the Plowshare. Yeah. Our friends who does the Anglo Saxon History Podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got shout out to um, Rob Shriver and Urgloiva. I w- actually was doing research this week on Gothic heathenry. Mm-hmm. Had someone ask me if I knew anything about that. And I went, not really, but I can go look. And then I went, mm-hmm. yeah, I can't judge if this website, I don't know enough. Uh, so, uh, yeah, here. Yeah, the, the, the problem with the Goths is that. The only sizable texts in the Gothic language are about three-quarters of the New Testament, bits of Ezra and Nehemiah, also from the Bible. And the cure broke up. A short biblical commentary, and yeah, that's about it. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, Yeah. got it. So, I mean, primary documentation is extremely sparse. Oh, yeah, and it's been – but yeah, it's – you could definitely make that argument, but that's for a different episode. But yeah, it's a, it's an interesting thing. They also started working on the ginormous German dictionary, mm-hmm. which I'm sure had a much better name than that. But I like ginormous German dictionary, so we're going. With I, it. I think it's the Deutsches Wörterbuch, but yeah, ginormous German dictionary works for me, which did get finished, but not until 1961. But dictionaries are never finished, right? New words are constantly added, right? Well, as soon as they finished in 1961, they have to turn around and you know start adding all of the the new yeah. words. So, I mean, amazing scholars. Jakob Grimm also did a lot of work. I think we talked about him in the last one of these we did on uh, Indo-European, working out the rule, the sound change that happened that changed Proto-Indo-European into Germanic, changing your P's to F's and all of that. So, now I just want to ask you a question. Yeah. 
because I, I really want to know what did naked Germanic youth acrobatically dancing among swords and spears have to do with anything? Oh, right. Well, okay. This is another <laughs> little outgrowth of German romanticism at this time. Uh, this is not the Grimm's, who I don't think were really into getting naked. It's cold. Yeah, yeah, too cold. But Tacitus had written uh, something along the lines that uh, I'm quoting from memory. The Germans have only one form of entertainment among them, naked youths bounding among swords and spears. So you have naked kids dancing around among swords, which just strikes me as kind of a bad idea. But yeah, um... Tacitus says something about how, you know, they're they're trained to it. They're used to it. Oh, you know, nothing irreplaceable gets amputated more than once or twice an evening. Yeah, um, and so that somehow turned into the German mm-hmm. Gymnastics Union. Right. This guy named Friedrich Ludwig Jan founds the Turnverein. Well, apparently, Turnen is German for gymnastics. And in this country, we had a lot of German immigrants coming, especially after 1848, and they formed Turner or Turnverein uh, athletic clubs in the cities where they had a large presence. And the idea was that by adopting this practice of bounding among swords and spears, you know, you would help the cause of German uh, regeneration, uh, physical fitness, and also moral regeneration through, you know, healthy exercise. Which kind of reminds me of an American parallel with uh, Kellogg, mm-hmm. who believed in physical fitness and bland diet for moral regeneration. Right, right. Yeah, believe that eating too much meat would make you well. Never mind. Yeah, that's uh. Just go go g- Google the the origins of Kellogg cereal and be prepared to be dumbfounded. Right, right. So anyway, bounding among swords and spears, uh, it's kind of hard to get insurance if you have people to do that. So Jan invented gizmos that were a little bit less likely to stab you, like the pommel horse and the parallel bars. And uh, the rings, he basically founded modern gymnastics. So in October, I took some out-of-town friends here visiting over to Hot Springs National Park mm-hmm. to the bathhouse. And we toured the old Fordyce bathhouse, which was the, one of the original bathhouses in Hot Springs, and which was built probably about 30, 20, 30 years after this. And they have this exact equipment in their th- one of their therapy rooms mm-hmm. as a way of trying to cure you through exercise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jan is kind of the the founding father of gymnastics. He's very big in the uh, founding of physical fitness as a as a movement. Next time you watch the Olympics, um, think of Jan. Think of naked little naked German boys running amongst swords and spears. Do I have to? Okay, think of little clothes. Think of the gymnast running Mm. amongst swords and spears. Right, right. And call it a floor routine. Yes, much, much safer to do your vaulting over a pommel horse, which originally was shaped like an actual horse, and you were supposed to practice vaulting into the saddle and out of the saddle, and then it got more complicated than that. So... All of this led to to some attempts to unify Germany, and unifying Germany hasn't turned out well. Right. Well, they tried in 1848. Liberal-minded Germans tried to get a parliament going, tried to get the German princes and leaders to sign on to this and create a political union, but it basically failed, uh, mostly because that would have involved the princes giving up some of their power and – Heaven forbid. Yeah, that's not a very easy thing to convince people to do. No. A lot of uh, Germans had to leave town after 1848, and quite a lot of them emigrated here. And a number of them ended up – quite a lot of them ended up fighting in the American Civil War, uh, mostly on the Union side. They had worked and struggled in Germany for freedom and liberation and unity – and it was kind of a natural extension of that to uh, to do it in in this country as well. You know, we being in Arkansas, our state is home to the largest Civil War battlefield west of the Mississippi. Yes. At Pea Ridge, roughly half the Union soldiers in that battle were German. There were two whole regiments 
that spoke German and had German officers. Well, I've heard the Germans make really good stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. German engineering, German technology. In this particular case, not great German leadership, but the Union won anyway. Yes. The Confederate leadership was worse. So one of the people who had to flee their home Mm -hmm. was... Composer Richard Wagner. He'd had a cushy job at the court at uh, in Dresden, where he'd been writing his operas and you know composing this and composing that, and then he got mixed up in the eighteen forty eight revolution, and that didn't work, and had he had to go on the run. Wagner was that rarest of people, a narcissist who actually was that good. Yeah, like I mean, he was he was. Convinced he was a great genius, and what makes it complicated is, is the fact that he actually was. You know, right. most narcissists aren't really as good as as they think they are, but he was transformative in the world of classical music. Left a string of unpaid debts all over Europe, kept having to leave town in the middle of the night, seduced any number of women along the way. The guy had an absolutely crazy life. He could have started a religion because mm-hmm. he sounds like Joseph Smith. Well, there are people <laughs> who are, you know, so devoted to Wagner that it it, it almost is a religion. Okay. Well, I'm just saying right. your description sounded a lot like some other people in mm-hmm. history and right. vague contemporaries. And you finally got patronage from King Ludwig of Bavaria who finally, because he was draining the treasury, ended up having to be declared insane and removed from the throne because Ludwig had these big fantasies of being a like medieval swan king or something like that. Uh, he used to dress up in some very fancy clothing and build these fantasy castles where he could live out his dream of being a, you know, a, a medieval prince. One of them's called Neuschwanstein which you've seen, although you didn't realize it. I know what this is. You know what Neuschwanstein is? I believe Neuschwanstein is also Hogwarts. Oh, no, wait. I'm doing Not that Hogwarts. Confused. Different movie studio. Okay. I don't know then. Oh, it's the it's Cinderella's Castle of the oh, Magic Kingdom. Gotcha. Well, not exactly, but that's what the designers of Disney World based it on was, was Neuschwanstein. Right. It's a different Bavarian castle right. that's Hogwarts. Right. And Ludwig finally got Wagner to settle down and paid off his debts and gave him a ridiculous amount of money for him to stage his operas. And he'd been writing operas since the 1840s on German legends, a lot of medieval chivalric legends like Lohengrin and Tannhäuser. And beginning in 1848 and then not finishing until 1874 – he wrote this cycle of four operas called The Ring, Der Ring des Nibelungen, The Ring of the Nibelungs. Otherwise known as probably the most familiar opera to most people because mm. it got co-opted so much by Looney Tunes. Oh, <laughs> yes. Be very quiet. I'm hunting wabbit. And then, of course, the appropriate heathen song that you will hear at any heathen gathering. Ah, yes. We're women with big thighs, riding the night skies, picking up dead guys. Hell, it's a job. We'll pack them and load them, take them to Odin, see if he knows them. Sometimes he does. Yes, yeah, that's the, the ride of the Valkyries. Which we, yeah, you will hear that at any right. gathering. It's just... Right. You can literally just start singing it and like 10 other people will join you. Right. And yeah, so The Ring is something on the order of 18 hours of music and four operas with a humongous orchestra. Wagner even designed new instruments to be part of the orchestra. Yes. This kind of lower and hard as it seems to imagine, harder to play version of the French horn called the Wagner tuba. There's one bit that he wrote for six harps. There's another bit that he wrote for, I think, 12 tuned anvils. He was ambitious. Right. Yeah, had these huge ideas and somehow managed to get them all fulfilled. It it helps if you've, yeah. you know, brainwashed a uh, very wealthy king with a lot of weird ideas. So he he based this on both 
German and Norse sources. So, you know, a lot of it was based on some of the things we've talked about, Mm -hmm. the Grimm's. But also he pulled in a lot from Norse sources because those were probably more Mm -hmm. easily to get. Yeah. Well, it's based more on, okay, the Nibelungenlied from Germany. It's based somewhat on that, but the Nibelungenlied doesn't have the gods anymore. Mm -hmm. Okay, there is one character who's only got one eye and runs around with a spear. That's totally not Odin. Right, right. But at least explicitly, there's no more mythological background to it. It's mostly a bunch of knights doing knightly things. Knightly, in fact. They're knightly, knightly. Right, anyway. Sorry about that. But yeah, for his opera, he starts in in the first opera of the cycle, Das Leingold. He starts with, you have these three Rhine maidens who are guarding a golden treasure and a dwarf, Alberic, comes and he takes it to do it he has to renounce love so he takes it and he forges from it a ring that could give him mastery but then Votan has to get gold because he has to pay these giants who have built Valhalla and if he doesn't pay them they're going to take Freya so he goes down and gets the gold away from Alberic and pays off the giants, but that sets a curse in motion. And eventually the world burns and the world starts over. That just, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cyclical nature of right. creation. And one thing that Wagner did, I mean, I wish I could play the music here, but that probably gets us into copyright issues. But something that you'll recognize is Wagner assigned every significant character or object or event its own little melody mm-hmm. called a leitmotif. And that way the orchestra can actually comment on the action. So when Wotan sings about the great hero that will someday wield his sword, the orchestra goes, dun, 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 which is the motif of Siegfried, the hero who will one day come. Yes. And the reason that's familiar is that... The big name that's used it is John Williams, especially in Star Wars. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, every time the Empire is mentioned. Yeah. Actually, I watched this on YouTube. In um, Return of the Jedi, Luke and Darth Vader have finally defeated the Emperor, at least for the next three movies or so. Yeah. The Emperor's finally been defeated. Luke is trying to drag the dying Darth Vader out of the exploding Death Star, and it's not working. And Darth Vader finally says, Luke, help me take this mask off. And yes, he's unmasked, and you finally see. And yeah, you know, he dies having redeemed himself. And right as Darth Vader is dying, and Luke is weeping, and his tears are falling on his father's face, listen carefully. Spoiler. Listen carefully in the music, and you'll hear very softly, da, 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 mm-hmm. da. It's like the very last gasp yes. of the Empire as Darth Vader is dying. And the orchestra gives you that emotional cue. Yes. And that's the technique that Wagner pioneered. Now, I want to talk about, though, what I think is probably one of the most significant contributions that Wagner made mm-hmm. to the things that annoy me the most in Heath Henry. Yeah. And that is Carl Emil Doppler. Right. His costume designer. Right. Bless his heart, he tried. He tried. <laughs> Doppler visited archaeological museums and tried to come up with authentic costumes as best he could. And he did read the sources and he did come up with a reconstruction that was plausible for the time. But horned helmets, winged helmets, giant plated boobies. Right. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, Scandinavian burials have those turtle brooches, you know, those big oval brooches that are supposed to hold up your your uh, your, your apron dress. I know, but that right. doesn't. Yeah. And, you know, when, when all you've got is a skeleton, it's kind of hard to tell that those brooches were supposed to go, you know, 
just below the shoulders, but not actually on the... Uh... I don't know. There's archaeological evidence. I was talking with our friend Alvidar about this a while ago, that they may have actually worn them lower and actually mm. been on the breast area. Right. Depending on area, this was more of some of the Rus reconstructions mm. that they were talking about. Right. But yeah, you still don't have, you know, women running around in, you know, brass lingerie and, you know, chainmail camisoles and things like that. That would actually irritate your skin. I'm it sure would it awful. would. Clearly designed by somebody who's never going to have to wear them himself. Exactly. But yeah, that's where we get the horned helmets and the winged helmets and a the, lot of um, the I would even argue a lot of the fantasy motifs we see now in things like D&D and mm-hmm. fantasy novels come from some of that. Right. I mean, this is one of the most compelling presentations of Germanic mythology. And it is a great work of art, although these days most productions try to get away a bit from the very realistic. Yes. Yeah. To that kind of staging, they tend to be a lot more abstract. It tends to be distracting because one of the things the ring is about is a meditation on political power, which is something Wagner was thinking a lot about because he's this failed revolutionary from 1848 because Wotan has this spear and not in the original sources. This is Wagner's idea, but the spear is engraved with runes, which are the laws, contracts, and treaties that he uses that give him legitimacy, give him the right to rule the world. Unfortunately, he's put in a place where he has to start breaking those. So what do you do when you've got a you know, ruler with laws and contracts giving him the right to rule who breaks those very contracts. What do you do? You know, what happens when a ruler has to give up love in order to hold on to power? You know, these are, you know, these remain interesting and timely questions. That's true. And like many of these interesting and timely questions, Mm -hmm. I think that's why it resonates even now. Mm Mm-hmm. Even though we, there is a lot of pushback. Wagner was also very anti-Semitic. He's mm. not a great guy. Yeah, he was, like I said, he was a narcissist who actually was that good. He was almost pathologically anti-Semitic, although at the same time he had warm personal friends who were Jewish, including the guy who conducted his last opera, Parsifal. He was complicated. He was – people still debate as to how much anti-Semitism might actually be coloring the operas themselves, and I don't know that we'll ever have a full answer to that. Some of the characters in the ring are suspected of being Jewish caricatures, but eh, 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 eh. nothing about them specifically says that, so people are going to argue about that you know, for a long time. So you know what isn't complicated, Ben? What isn't complicated? Audible. 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 So Audible is this great thing where you can go. I don't know about you. I am busy. I do this podcast. I run a kindred. I'm mentoring another kindred that's two and a half hours away. I have a job. I keep Ben in line, and that's a job. So, and, you know, I'm married. I have all these things. But one of the great things about Audible is I can download books and listen to them. Oh, So when I'm driving or I'm exercising or I am doing mindless data entry at work, I can listen to books, and there are even great heathen books. Now, one of the cool things, Audible is actually offering a free trial to our listeners. If you go to audibletrial.com forward slash heathenhistory, you can browse what is arguably the largest selection of audiobooks on the internet. And the great thing is, is if you go to that link, you go to audibletrial.com forward slash heathen history, you're getting a free book. And there's lots of really great free books. In fact, someone that we know Mm -hmm. named Ben has an Audible book. Mm. It's that one that the History Channel did the infomercial for. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's the sagas of Ragnar Lothbrok. And you can go check that out. There is, there's Neil Gaiman's North Mythology there's a modern day Havamal by our friend uh, Donkel McRonan. There are lots of really great options. There's also Jackson Crawford's new Edda as well. Plus, if you're like me, sometimes I'm driving. I want to listen to something a little less 
you know, intense. So I might download one of their great uh, comedy. Plus, there's exclusive content. They have exercise audio. I didn't exercise know this, audio? But they have, hmm. like, audio that's specifically made to go with a workout. Oh. And it's all included with your membership. So I thought that was just Olivia Newton-John's music. Let's get Audible. Audible. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you go to audibletrial.com forward slash heathen history. Browse. Get yourself a free book. Enjoy it. And, uh, you know, we, we hope that you'll, you know, I hope you'll pick a good heathen book. But really, just go and enjoy it. So, but you can literally select anything. And that's one of the great things about it that I really like because they have such a huge, huge thing. So, like I said, go to audibletrial.com forward slash heathen history for your free audiobook. All right. So, we have been romantic. Mm-hmm. We've taught at least German romantic. Right, right. And we will come back mm-hmm. and uh, hit up some other romantic movements. And then, just a hint for everyone who's been asking, we are currently working on the two most requested episodes. Right. One on the nine noble virtues. And the other is why racism is a historically accurate in heathenry. Right, right. So so we're working those we're up. We're working on them. Mm-hmm. So if you want to support us, you know, we do have a Patreon, and that helps. Basically, all that does is pay for our editing. Mm-hmm. So that has sneak peeks, special gifts. You get access to our exclusive Facebook group. That's patreon.com forward slash heathenhistory. Right. You can follow us on Twitter at Heathen History or Facebook at Facebook.com slash Heathen History for updates. And as always, our show notes and our sources are available on our website, HeathenHistory.com. Yeah, no one ever accuses us as being citation needed. Mm -hmm. And our theme music was composed by Roller Music and it's called Happy Viking. For the Heathen History Podcast, I'm Lauren. And I'm Ben. Wassail, y'all.